All right, um, would you take your Bibles then and uh, join me in the book of Exodus? I mean, Exodus 40. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you should be able to find that on page 80. Um, we're in Exodus 40, looking at the, the last few verses of the book, Exodus 40, 34 through 38. The title of the sermon is God With Us, and the key words for our worshipers in training for our kids as they listen, listen, kids for the words, tabernacle, presence, and Jesus. Now what I want to do today is pretty simple. I want to look with you at the end of Exodus where we uh, see the glory of God fill the tabernacle. And I want to, to see from this text uh, a, a, a tying together, if you will, a bringing together of all the things that our children this week, and I pray parents as well, that we've been learning and discussing. As I mentioned earlier, we just finished up BBS this week, and we have uh, been in the book of Exodus with our kids And uh, throughout the week, we've seen uh, how God delivers His people from Egyptian bondage, rescuing them through the waters of the Red Sea. We saw God provide food and water for His people. We saw God provide Israel, uh, or uh, really establish Israel as His own nation through a formal covenant cut with Him at Sinai, where He gave them the Ten Commandments. And we saw that God lives with His people, that He guides them despite their tendency to rebel and resist him. And so, uh, kids, if you were at VBS this week, I hope that you are going to pay a special attention to the sermon this morning. But even if your kids weren't at VBS this week, or if you're not a kid uh, yourself or don't have kids, this sermon will still be useful to you, I trust, because in it, we are simply going to focus on what is arguably the central theme of the Bible. And with it, the major storyline of the Bible. And so to that end, I want to begin with a question. What is the purpose for which the world and the universe exists? The most plain and obvious reason for creation is that humanity would dwell with God and glorify God, enjoying Him and his fellowship forever. Every command, every mandate, every commission in the Bible is subsumed under this chief end of mankind. From Genesis to Revelation, the Scriptures are about God's purpose in creating the universe in order that His goodness, His glory, and His greatness might overflow onto His creatures for their joy. In other words, God is a fruitful, productive, and generous being. It is His nature to overflow. In Genesis 1-3, through we read about God's act of creation. There He formed the world and filled the world. And He set His image bearers in it, man and woman. He set them in it to fill the world with other image bearers and to subdue the world for fruitful, productive living. And yet nearly as instantly as we arrive upon the scene of this glorious creation, almost as immediately mankind falls into sin, falls into rebellion against God. We read about this, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. 
And then from Genesis 3 on to Genesis 50, we move from the life-giving presence of God in the Garden of Eden to death and burial in the land of Egypt. We leave the heights of Eden upon the mountain of God and have gone through the flood and through Babel, through Canaan, and we get to Egypt, to Sheol and the grave. The book of Genesis literally ends with the death and burial of Joseph in Egypt. Man has, in other words, been expelled from the presence of God and His sanctuary. And this is tragic. Yet, it radically shapes the story of redemption. Ever since Genesis 3.15, where God declares war against the serpent, promising that his seed would war against the seed of the woman, and yet the seed of the woman would crush his head despite him bruising his heel. Ever since that passage in Genesis 3.15, Yahweh has been opening up a way for humanity to dwell once again in his presence. They're expelled from the garden, and yet God is at work. Genesis ends in death, but what do we get in the book of Exodus? We get a rebirth. A real and actual movement out of the chaos of slavery through the chaos waters back into the presence of God. Throughout the book of Exodus, we see Israel portrayed as a new humanity being restored into the image of God, into the likeness of God to work and to serve as originally intended. If you think about the structure of the book of Exodus for a moment, we see that Exodus really can be divided into two halves. First, in, verses, or in chapters 1-15, through 15, you find the, the Exodus story out of Egypt and the, the ten plagues and the, the, the Red Sea. And that's chapters 1-15. through 15. And then in 2nd and 16-40, through 40, we have the covenant cut at Sinai. And thematically, these two halves are related to one another in that they, um, they help us to understand the knowledge of God and the presence of God. In Genesis, there was a growing distance from the presence of God, which led to a darkened understanding and lack of the knowledge of God. But the book of Exodus reverses that. First, we're given a knowledge of God, where He reveals Himself as supreme, as better than the gods of Egypt, the so-called gods of Egypt. He reveals Himself, and then having done so, He brings His people back into His presence. The book of Exodus begins with God's people's enjoyment of the primordial blessing, fruitfulness. It's quickly overturned. That's the beginning of Exodus by forced slavery where they're made to build uh, cities for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So we see that Israel must be redeemed from bondage if they're ever to enjoy life in the presence of God. And fundamental to Israel's deliverance is the revelation of the knowledge of God. God demonstrates His power over the forces of nature in the ten plagues, but that ultimately displays His power, as I said, over the gods of Egypt. They are no match for the one true living God. And it all culminates in chapter 15 in Moses' song at the sea. We read in verse 11 about the central nature of the knowledge of God, Moses asked, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
And so having brought them out of Egypt through the waters of chaos, God has recreated a people and received them once again into his fellowship at Sinai. And we see that beginning in chapter 16. And and through 24, 16 through 24, God begins to articulate his law beginning with the Ten Commandments, followed by various laws that would be important outworkings of those ten words for life with God as his people in the promised land. And then in Exodus 25 through 31, we get what some might call excruciating detail, instructing Israel how to build the tabernacle, the the place where God's presence would dwell among them. But then in Exodus 32, Israel begins to worship other gods. And it brings God's judgment upon them. And in Exodus 33, he tells them to leave Sinai, to head on to the land. He says that he would send help, but he would not go with them. And Moses says, well, then don't send us at all. Kill me if you are not going to go with us. And God agrees to go. And he reveals himself to Moses. He makes his goodness to pass before him. And he renews his covenant with Israel. And he sends Moses back down the mountain with the renewed covenant. And then the tabernacle is constructed in chapters 35 through 40. This is what we read in Exodus 40, 33, just prior to the passage that will be under our consideration this morning. It says, so Moses finished the work. The tabernacle has been built. And then we will see here in our verses 34 through 38 that God comes to reside in it. And yet, as we will see, there is still a problem. So let me read these verses now, outline them, and then we will get to work. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, or the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night. And in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So there are three things that I want you to see with me in these verses, and we're actually going to work backward here. In verse 38, beginning at the end, verse 38, we're going to see that as Exodus closes, God does indeed once again dwell among his people. And then backing up to verses 36 through 37, we see God leads his people. And third, in verses 34 through 35, we will see that nevertheless, what has been accomplished in all of this, in all of Exodus here through Moses is temporary and insufficient, and it primarily serves to point forward to the greater Moses, who would deliver his people not just from Egyptian bondage, but bondage to sin, and who wouldn't bring them near the presence of God, but would bring them into the presence of God. That last point was a long one, so I'll try to restate all of it real succinctly here. Working backwards, starting in verse 38, we'll see that God dwells with his people. Then in 36 and 37, we'll see that God leads his people. And in 34 and 35, we will see 
it was temporary and ultimately points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me in the first place, then at verse 38. The cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night. And we're told this was in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And we're going to see the problem soon enough, but I think it's important that we begin here. God is with His people. He's in their sight. He was in their sight all throughout their journeys, we're told. And many of you will know that, ex, uh, that Israel doesn't leave the Mount of Sinai until we get to the book of Numbers. And when they do, the Lord leads them straight to the promised land, essentially. But once they get there, they rebel because they fear man rather than God. And because of the rebellion, God judges that evil generation, refusing to let them enter the land. Instead, he tells them that they are to wander in the wilderness until every last one of them had died, except for Joshua and Caleb. And after that... After that initial generation had died out, he would bring them back in. So for 40 years, they wandered in the desert because of the rebellion against God. And yet, Exodus 40.38 tells us, God did not leave them. And of course, already, I can't help it but to look ahead to the Lord Jesus. He promises us never to leave or forsake his people either. Hebrews 13.5. So I want to ask you this morning, how does that sit with you? How does it land on you this morning, my friends, that God is with His people? That He dwells with His people? Let me ask it a different way. Do you feel abandoned by God today? Did you come in here this morning weighed down, feeling burdened because you feel So alone. Now, how you feel is one thing. And those feelings can be devastating. But the truth is, to actually be alone for the people of God is an impossibility. Brothers and sisters, you cannot and will not ever be forsaken by God. And we'll see more about why that is before the sermon is out. The text here doesn't really explain it. doesn't really state why or or how we can have any confidence that God will never leave us. That comes later. But it does give us hope that as we see this, everything that is to follow for Israel, God was with them. All throughout their life journeys. But I noticed too, it's not just that God is with His people, but He was with and in the sight of all the house of Israel. It wasn't just the priests or the leaders of Israel who had a sight of God. It wasn't just the wealthy or those who had Uh, been the go-getters to pitch their tent close enough to the tabernacle to see it. This was in all the sight of all the people 
of Israel. All of God's people without discrimination are afforded a sight of the glorious presence of God. Now for us today, it's no longer a literal, literal cloud and pillar of fire, but we have the promise of His Word and His Spirit to be with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so that's, that's the first thing to see is that God dwells with His people. Look with me secondly in verses 36 and 37 where we see this truth. He not only dwells with His people, but He leads and guides them. The cloud would be taken up and it would move from one place to the next. And it was then and only then that they were to pack up and move camp. Israel was to be led by God. It was not they who were to determine their course. It was not their wisdom that would get them where they needed to go. But it was the direction and the leading of God. You said earlier, you know, when they depart from Sinai in, in Numbers, the, the offer was pretty simple. God said, follow me into the promised land, and I will conquer your enemies for you. And yet they refused. So they were required to follow him from one seemingly random place to the next until that rebellious generation died. And so, that's them roaming around a wilderness because of their disobedience, yet never left by God. Led by God. But what about us? How does God lead us today? Or as I said, it's not by cloud and fire, but by His Word and Spirit. But He, he does lead and direct His people. He has in His Word provided the path upon which we may walk in the pursuit of holiness. And why pursue holiness? Well, because God is holy. The pursuit of holiness isn't an end in itself, but it is for communion with God. Holiness can be defined as conformity in both mind, desire, and will to the law of God. And God's law is but an expression of His character. So if I want to enjoy fellowship with God, I want to be like God, since He has no fellowship with darkness. And so in the pursuit of holiness, I'm transformed to reflect His character and to so enjoy fellowship with Him. And His Word tells me what that looks like. And His Spirit empowers, invigorates, and instructs my spirit in how to do that. On my own, I am powerless to grow in grace and holy communion with God. But for God's people, we're not alone. God's presence is with us. As the cloud and fire remained in the sight of Israel and led them to God's desired destination, so too does His Word and Spirit remain with us, leading and guiding us so that where we go, that is where God wants us to go. And so the question for us is, do you submit yourself? Do we submit ourselves to the leading of God as given to us in the Bible? Those are our first two points. And the third one is a bit longer, where we'll spend a lot of our time here in verses 34 and 35. Look with me 
here to see that despite the good things that we find here at the end of Exodus, God is with His people. God leads His people. There's still a major problem. Remember, in Genesis, mankind, after the fall, experienced a growing estrangement from the presence of Yahweh. There was a widening chasm between God and His people. In the book of Exodus, there's an effort to bring about a reconciliation between God and man. That's the question that we're asking ever since Genesis 3. Can man and God dwell together again? And so if we draw all the parallels together between the tabernacle and creation, right, and, and the Garden of Eden, the most holy place of creation, we see in this passage here, for the first time since the expulsion from Eden, God indeed can and will dwell with humanity. The Maker of heaven and earth who once walked with His people in the garden in olden days will now once again walk among them in the tabernacle, taking up His residence there. When the glory of Yahweh descends upon the tabernacle in verse 34, a historic cataclysmic event has taken place. The God of heaven has arrived. We have gotten back to Eden. I want you to imagine for a minute what it would have been like. You've built the temple. And then God's glory fills it. It would surely have been a sight that would have remained with you the rest of your life. The memory of that day. And yet, these verses are not the end of the drama, but rather the beginning. Because as majestic as the moment which has arrived is, so the problem that has now been revealed is terrible. And so rich the theology to which the problem will lead. It's a great moment, followed by a tragic one. Because contrary to all that you might expect, if you had been an Israelite in that day, watching the, the contributing to the tabernacle, watching it being constructed, or working on it yourself, or if you had been Moses yourself, contrary to all that you might expect leading up to this moment, this great culminating moment, Exodus 40:35 tells us that Moses couldn't enter the tent. If Moses can't enter the tent, what hope do you and I have to enter the tent? Yes, God dwells in the sight of all His people here in Exodus. Yes, God leads them wherever He wants to go. But we are still left with the burning question here in verse 35. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 15 asks this question and answers it for us. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The answer, Psalm 15, the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The psalm goes on to describe this righteous person. And line by line, as you read Psalm 15 with that question in mind, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The hope of the psalm's honest reader just deflates. 
because as you read it, you recognize it's not me. But even before you get to Psalm 15, we should know that in our own right, we don't have any hope. You know, if you've ever wondered why the book of Leviticus exists, in large part, it is because it is God's provisional, yet clearly temporary, answer to the problem that is posed at the end of Exodus. Moses can't enter the tent because the glory of the Lord has filled it. Exodus begins with God speaking to Moses from out of the tent, and then God making provisional laws and sacrifice rituals that would allow for the sins of the people to be temporarily covered so that God could have fellowship with His people once more. And yet, as you read Leviticus, and as you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's clear that this was ultimately not meant to deal with sin. Ultimately, it couldn't last forever. And this is stated explicitly by the author of Hebrews, which tells us in chapter 10 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Likewise, the imperfect and sinful priesthood established in Leviticus was not sufficient to mediate God and man's relationship wasn't sufficient to bring Moses or any of the rest of us into the tent of God forever. And so we need a great high priest. We need a perfect sacrifice to restore the relationship between God and man. Enter Jesus Christ. And I want you to consider how the New Testament makes this explicit. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary, and he tells her that, you know, blessings, you found favor with God. He says that she would conceive and bear a child who would be the son of the Most High. He would reign over the house of David, and of his kingdom there would be no end. And, of course, she asked how this was to be since she was not married. She was, had not known a man How could she have a child? And the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel, in these words, alludes to our text here in Exodus 34. Whereas in Exodus, the cloud and the glory of God rested rested on and covered the tent of meeting. The Holy Spirit and the glory of God would come upon and overshadow Mary. Why is that significant? Well, what was the result of the overshadowing that took place? Was it not the conception and subsequent birth of the Lord Jesus? In John 1.14, we're told that in the incarnation, when Jesus became man and dwelt among us, we're told that the word dwelt... Among us. The word dwelt there is the verb form of the noun used in Exodus 34, the tent. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the new tent of meeting where God and man dwell together. In Jesus, we're no longer prohibited to, uh, from entering the temple. We're no longer required to remain outside the tent, but we're not united to it. We're made one with Him. My friends, the truth is, This just begins to scratch the surface of what we can learn about our life with God from Exodus. 
but we've been discussing with our children all week how God has revealed Himself to us. How He has provided for us. How He lives with us. And how He leads us. And we saw it all in the way He cared for His people in Exodus. But it's important that we see how it all points to the Lord Jesus. And I want to close with this. Whether you're the youngest person here or the oldest person here, I want to invite us all to trust in Jesus. Now most of us in here, I expect, already do. And so if you do, let's do so again and again and again. Let's live by faith in Jesus and trust Him today and tomorrow and forever. The Lord Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, my friend. He will lead and guide you by His Word and Spirit. And He has, through His death and resurrection, opened the way back to God for you. And for anyone here who doesn't trust in Jesus, young or old, would you do so now? I pray that you would see that you were made for fellowship with God. But sin keeps you from that fellowship. Keeps you from your ultimate purpose in life. And so often today, especially it seems in in modern culture, in Western culture, everyone's talking about purpose and meaning. And those are important Things, but they seem so elusive to people in our day. But the Bible is very clear. Your purpose, the reason you exist, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I pray that if you don't know that, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that you would see that Jesus alone and His life, His death, His resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand, that alone can deal with your sin, can give you a new heart, can bring you into the new creation and into the tent of God to make you who you ought to be. You know, Psalm 15 says that it is the one with clean hands and a pure heart that will dwell with God. As we said earlier, that's not you or me. But thankfully, that is the Lord Jesus. Jesus read Psalm 15 and could say that it was about Him. It was for Him. What did He need to ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, He needed a clean hands and a pure heart. And He had it. And because He had it and then died, He's able to make our hearts and our hands pure and clean. He lived a perfect life, and so he was fit to offer himself as a suitable sacrifice for sinners. And because he was perfect, death couldn't keep him, and so he rose victorious from the grave to bring with him all who trust in him, to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. And so I pray that God's Spirit would quicken hearts this morning and would bring strange sheep into his fold And I pray that He would comfort His people 
with this thought. My friends, God is with you if you are in the Lord Jesus. He will lead you. He will never forsake you. Children, this is the great God whom we love and serve, that your parents love and serve, and the great God that we want to bring you to each and every day. Not just for a week at VBS. Not just every morning, Sunday morning during Sunday school. Not just a couple of comments from the pastor during the sermon. But every moment of every day, we want to bring you to the Lord Jesus. That you might enjoy Him forever. And so I pray that God would would add His blessing to the reading and the preaching of His Word, all for Christ's sake. Well, with that, we come to the Lord's table.